Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week, finally, we are going to talk about Italy. Oh, Italy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, by Chris Bickerton, and it's a pleasure to welcome Lucia Rubinelli, who is a fellow in political thought at the LSE, but also is Italian and has written a lot about Italian politics. And what we're going to try and do is work out how we got to where we are now, because this is a complicated picture. And if we recorded this episode last week, it would have been out of date within about 12 hours of being broadcast. So we're doing it at the point where it settled down a little, but we're not sure how much. And then we're going to talk about what the implications are for the rest of Europe. And we want to touch on Spain too, because there's a new government there as well. Lucia, so one of the questions for an outsider that was really hard to work out is there was a long period where it looked like it wouldn't be possible to form a government because the election had produced this very confusing result where the two populist parties were the dominant parties and yet they didn't seem to have much in common. And then we got to a point where they had reached some kind of agreement that allowed them to form a government. So just tell us what you think was the coming together. So the Five Star Movement and the League and their two leaders, Di Maio for the Five Star Movement, Salvini for the League... What did they find they had enough in common about to be able to form a government? That's an interesting question. And I guess there are different ways of answering it. So the first one is that Di Maio, the leader of the Five Star Movement, because his party was the one that won most votes, so the coalition that won most votes was the centre-right coalition, but his party was the one that won most votes, he was the one who was expected to try and form a government. So he talked to all parties, with the exception of Berlusconi, because for him that was not acceptable. And, and that included Renzi's party when Renzi was still in charge. Renzi. And then Renzi goes, but still there was no possibility that anyone would work with them, right? Exactly. So the Partito Democratico was actually quite split inside as to whether they wanted to talk to the Five Star or not. And for a very long time, they refused to talk to them. Then towards the end, they accepted to talk, but it was a failure. It didn't work. So the only option that was left really was for the Five Star Movement to try and form a government with the Lega. And to be honest, I think that has always been in the background. They always thought that that was a possibility. Was all of this months of talking just to kind of dance till we got to the moment where the action started, which was the League and Five Star? Yes, even though... I have to say that one of the first moves was for the League and the Five Star to try and talk. That failed badly because back then, immediately after the elections, Matteo Salvini was still, was still seeing himself as the leader of the centre-right coalition. And because the condition of the Five Star movement to form a government with the League was that Berlusconi would be out, that would have meant breaking the coalition. And Salvini was not accepting that. The first talks happened with Salvini as the leader of the centre-right coalition, not wanting to split it up. So it's almost like there was this sort of filtering process that had to go on to have this dance where, first of all, 
Berlusconi has to drift out of the picture, then Renzi has to drift out of the picture. You have to wait until the last two are left standing and then they can talk. Yes. And the interesting thing is, I think, that at the beginning, Berlusconi absolutely didn't want to split the coalition. He was actually very harsh on the Five Star Movement. He famously said that he would never allow a government, a five-star government to happen because these five-star movement people are only good to clean the toilets at Mediaset, his TV channels. So he, he was very harsh on them and he really, did, <laughs> he really didn't want that to happen. And then suddenly, somehow, he came to accept it. We don't know exactly why. People assume that Salvini promised him that if Berlusconi were to allow Salvini to form a coalition government with the Five Star, Salvini would guarantee that Berlusconi's interests would not be attacked by the Five Star movement. So maybe that's the reason why Berlusconi accepted to move out and let it be without too much drama. And then we finally got to this point where they were able to propose a government to the president and it included the nomination of someone for the finance ministry, Chris, that the president said was basically unconstitutional. So this was Paolo Savona, who was nominated as the economics minister, who's been around for a long time. It's very old and you know reasonably well known. And the thing that seemed to be the sticking point was that he had come over time, and it's worth emphasising this, this wasn't his starting point as a political position, but he developed over time a very critical attitude towards the euro. His position was that the eurozone needs to be transformed into a very different, much more integrated economic zone in order to allow the kinds of transfers that might help out countries that are really struggling. He then came to the realisation, which I think is perfectly right, that there's no chance really that that sort of profound reform is going to take place. Therefore, if Italy's in a position where it systematically is not gaining from Eurozone membership, it needs to begin to consider some alternative to Eurozone membership. But his nomination was interpreted by the president as an attempt to put a anti-Euro person into one of the most important positions in the Italian government with grave implications for the ability of Italy to stay within the Eurozone. And so he refused the, the nomination. Looking at the reasons he gave... This is the, the president. This is the president. The reason Matteo gave for refusing Savona's nomination. They're extremely important because they set a precedent. And so what Mattarella said is on the one hand, he said that it was his duty to protect the integrity of the Italian constitution and having somebody who was Eurosceptic and threatened Italy's membership of the Eurozone had constitutional implications. And at the end of the day, he said his duty was to defend the interests of Italian citizens who have savings, who have shares, all these things. They're all threatened by putting Savona in, in that position because the markets would react so negatively. You sent us this speech yesterday to read, and Lucia, you were watching it live, right? You actually yeah. saw it as it unfolded. And it just was astonishing that he seemed to run together his sort of constitutional duty with responding to immediate market action on the basis of sort of daily political events. I mean, how is that constitutional politics? It's a particular interpretation which says that if you make a decision that has such an impact on the markets, then that is in and of itself possibly anti-constitutional. It's an extremely strong statement to make because it also implies that... Implies that the markets are sovereign. And it also implies that within the European treaties, it's incompatible with European law to have a Eurosceptic finance minister. Now, that's absolutely not the case, but that's the precedent that's being set. So his reasoning towards the end of the speech was that having Savona as finance minister would have meant exiting the euro, 
which would have been a major political change that was not debated in the electoral campaign. So the idea is that I'm going to protect the constitution by making sure that this massive political change, political economic changes for the country are voted on by and, and just just before I bring Helen in, this is something that I really don't get, which is he's the finance minister. He can't decide to exit the euro, right? I mean, it's uh, I, I don't know what the process would be by which Italy would exit the euro, but it's not just at the say-so of the finance minister. I mean, there is a prime minister, Giuseppe Conti. There are these two leaders of these two parties. There is a parliament. There is a Senate. I mean, governments contain all sorts of people who have quite out there views. They don't get to act on them. And arguably, it's not the fact that you have a Eurosceptic finance minister that decides whether the government is going to plan going out of the of the euro, right? In the sense, with or without Savona, if the government wants to exit the euro, it's going to happen. It's not the, the person that... I think that the point of view of Mattarelli in this is, is that the insistence of the two parties on nominating this person for the finance ministry, to him, signified their intent or their desire, I should say, to leave the euro. And I think the fact that they were not willing to compromise on that, he read as saying these are two parties that didn't campaign, explicitly at least, on leaving the euro, and now they are showing their true colours that that is what they want to do. I think there's a number of things that can be said about that. First of all is that the way in which Savona himself has presented Italy's membership of the um, eurozone, whether it continues or not, is in terms of contingency planning, essentially. Now, in that sense, I think any Italian government, you'd expect to have a contingency plan about leaving the euro because <laughs> that is an actual risk that is now in play. In fact, I'd be surprised if most members of the eurozone haven't got some kind of contingency plan about what happens if the euro membership fails. There's another way of looking at it, though, that says that actually this is what the euro has done, is that it turns questions that are not constitutional questions into constitutional questions and that in some sense is what the European Union more broadly than just the the Eurozone does because these treaties effectively do create constitutional orders. They can't be undone by any single state in treaty terms. They can't be undone by any single state even if Italy could unilaterally in principle decide to leave the Euro. So if you have a government that looks like its intention is to undo an aspect of one of the EU treaties, I think there is a an argument for saying that that is now an unconstitutional thing to do. Now, that raises a much bigger question, though, of what on earth are we doing in a situation in which macroeconomic policy questions have been turned into constitutional questions? Because that precludes having any democratic debate about the fundamental questions of macroeconomic policy. And that's, in some sense, that's the primary structural flaw of the Eurozone. I think we need to come back to this, because there is a really profound question about democracy here in this Italian case. But just on the details of how we got to where we are now. So the president rejected this nomination. And then it looked like there would have to be elections because there was no other way of resolving this. And then there was a bit of panic in the markets and so on. And and it looked like from the outside that the person who was calling the shots here was Salvini because were there to be elections, the assumption seemed to be that the league would be, they might not end up as the biggest party, but they would be the winners. They were gaining ground all the time. They were somehow in the driver's seat here and Five Star wasn't. But then who linked first here? Because if the idea is by nominating Savona for the finance ministry, that signals a desire to leave the euro. But nominating him for the European affairs ministry doesn't signal that desire. I mean, I take it that's what's going on here. Who blinked first? Did the president blink first or did 
the parties blink first? I think the parties. I think it was the five stars. But to come back to your question, I actually don't think necessarily that the reasoning behind Mattarella's rejection of Savona as finance minister necessarily have to do with the fact that it signaled a will to exit the euro. I think his argument was much more about it would happen just because of his presence in that office. I guess his argument was that by putting him there, the markets would go crazy. Now Helen can say more about this. So it'd be a kind of domino effect. Exactly. exactly. Would, we wouldn't even debate control. It. Exactly. Yeah. It wouldn't even be a decision. It would just happen. While by putting him in a much less influential ministry would, would prevent that. So, so it's say, fine I, to have I a find US that capital. a hard argument to I think follow. That the, 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 I think that they both blinked. And the reason why they both blinked is there's a bit of the story that we missed out so far. And that is after the president had rejected the first finance minister proposed, he then made his own move, which was to nominate an ex-IMF official to head a technocratic government. And that is what there was a terrible market reaction to. And that point, what we see is a significant increase in the spreads of Italian bonds over German bonds. I think I'm right in saying it's the biggest single day increase since the euro began. So worse than it was uh, any single day in the eurozone crisis at its peak. And people in Italy really do focus on this. I mean, I was reading yeah. the coverage from elsewhere. The question of the spread has become this almost totemic thing. Absolutely. But because it's, it was back in 2011, I mean, the Monti government was justified in the name of the spread, right? Yeah. And the Italian banks, their share price was being very badly hit. And, and I think this is significant in terms of the broader picture of what happened. It was contagious to the rest of the financial system. So even share prices in China were hit that day by what happened in Italy. So this was actually a really disastrous moment. And that's why I think both of them blinked. Mm -hmm. It became clear that the thing that the investors feared the most was another Italian election. Now, you could say that Salvini would have benefited from an Italian election, so perhaps he did blink the most. On the other hand, I think that what emerged is a fudge. And it's a fudge because you push Savona off to the European job, you have someone who's moderately less sceptical about the euro in the in the finance job. I mean, the new finance minister, Trier, thinks Germany should leave the eurozone. So it's not like we've moved to somebody who's now a euro enthusiast in this job. But the stakes for Italy were so high that day, not just because it was Italy's position in the financial markets at stake, but others as well. And I suspect that there would have been quite a lot of external pressure in that context for it's fudged to emerge. But this is where the, the idea of the markets having such a decisive role in political decision-making is so dangerous because that response then leads to what we've seen, which is a sort of fudge, as Helen said. But it's completely irrational if you think that the underlying problem of this current Italian government from the perspective of the Eurozone is the programme. And it is the programme. I think it doesn't matter who's in which job. Mm. The fact is that you have a government that's putting together a programme the fiscal implications of which are clearly to break a number of Eurozone rules. And some of the ideas that have been floated about how to finance this fiscal expenditure is basically to create a kind of parallel currency. That is possibly the greatest threat to the Eurozone, I think, is the idea that you could legitimately start to use quite a complicated way of issuing treasury bills as a way of financing a fiscal deficit that doesn't mean you have to leave the Eurozone. That's something really dramatic. Now, the markets, they don't focus on that. They focus on these really short-term things. And so you get this sort of 
pattern of change where the underlying question is simply not being addressed. So the Five Star and the, and the Lega are going to govern and all the questions that we think have somehow sort of been solved in the short term are going to come back in the next few But they few haven't months. been solved. I'm not even sure that anybody really thinks that they've been solved. What they've been done is kicked down into touch and knowingly. And I do think that the predicament of Italy, given the size of its debt, is, is that it cannot tolerate days like that in the markets. I mean, even even if you look at what had happened the last bond auction that took place in Italy, well, I think it was on the five-year bonds, it was a, having to pay 1.75% increase on in what they paid on the previous auction. For a state that's got 130, more than 130% GDP debt, this is a real problem. So everyone can rail what they like about market constraints, but Italy has got a debt problem, and that means that even relatively small margins make a profound difference. So it's striking that here we've gone this far, we haven't even mentioned the Prime Minister. So that's one of the oddities here too. So uh, Giuseppe Conte is the Prime Minister. And again, seen from the outside, it's quite hard to know how this works, because the two party leaders, I mean, Five Star is not a party, right? It's a movement, are his deputies. But they seem to be calling the shots. So Salvini has been sort of negotiating with Orban as the interior minister. Is the Prime Minister a figurehead in this government? What What is... How does it work? So th- this is interesting because yesterday he went to the Senate and there was the confidence vote. So he gave his first public speech where he presented the programme. And interestingly, he addressed the question. So he said, many of you don't know me because I don't have political experience. I am a law professor. And they're wondering what my role will be in this government. And he said, my role is going to be the guarantor of the contract that the Five Star Movement and the Lega Nord signed as program for the government. He was very aware of what he was saying and he said this is going to be landmark shift for Italian politics. This is the beginning of the Third Republic and what marks the beginning of the Third Republic as they call it is the fact that the Prime Minister is not a political leader, is not somebody who has a political vision himself, but is somebody who's gonna just guarantee that the contract that the parties have agreed on for changing Italy as they call it the government of change is going to take place. So he's presenting himself as the sort of political figure, but neutral between the two parties, who's going to enforce the programme. It's striking, isn't it? Because we've got a populist government. I mean, it is in some sense a populist government. And yet its prime minister is almost saying that he's there as the, not non-political, but somehow one level above that kind of politics figure. Mm-hmm. So he's not a technocrat, although he is a law professor. But he, So he's what? He's a kind of... The other interesting thing is that after having said that he's the guarantor of the contract, he also said, I'm going to be, he, he's a lawyer uh, and a barrister. So he said, I'm going to be the, the barrister of the Italian people. I'm going to defend the interests well, he's gonna be doing a lot. of the Italian people in the European Union. So he has this double role. On the one hand, he's the guarantor, the sort of uh, third party between the Fevster movement and the Lega Nord. On the other hand, he's also the the person who's going to defend the interests. What are the weapons at his disposal? So if they, quote-unquote, break the contract, he does what? He resigns, and then yeah. they replace him with someone else. Well, that's very interesting, because in the, in the famous contract that they signed, if a problem arises within the government, what happens is that it's not the prime minister who decides, it's this uh, extra-parliamentary body, conciliation body, where the leaders, Salvini and Di Maio, seat, as well as other members of the party and the movement, and together they are going to decide how to solve the problem. So it's extra-parliamentary. The reason why they've done that, it makes perfect sense, I think, um, because the programme as it stands is not some sort of magical 
ideological fusion between the Five Star and the League. It's just two programmes rammed together with everyone getting more or less what they want, or at least saying they're going to do what they said they were going to do in the election, with this oversight mechanism to deal with problems when they will arise. It's not that they're entirely inconsistent, I think. It's just that they are two programmes with different priorities cobbled together. And looking at what's been written, just reading the British newspapers the last couple of days, the implication was that Salvini in the Interior Ministry is going to focus on immigration. Um, what, what ministry is Di Maio in? Welfare and Labour. Welfare. And he's going to focus on universal basic income, which is a part of the five-star programme. So that in itself is kind of interesting. So we've got a government that is at least now committed to one of the things that lots of people across the political spectrum think is an exciting radical idea, alongside what looks like pretty raw anti-migrant politics. But if I can say something, the Italian version of the universal basic income is not what we normally think is the universal basic income, in that it's not a universal basic income. It's, a it's not universal, it's not basic, and it's not right. income. It is, only, it is, <laughs> it is, is actually it? subsidies okay. or state benefits for those who are looking for jobs. So it, it's, just, it's just a welfare reform? Well, the, I, I guess part of it is a problem in translation. We don't call it universal basic income. We call it citizenship. Say it in Italian. Reddito di cittadinanza. Oh, right, that, yeah. Yeah. Which basically means if you're a citizen, you don't have a job, you're looking for a job, while you look for a job up to three years, we are going to give you something like 800 euros per month. And it's also that, from what we can understand now, it seems as if Salvini is going to be acting immediately and is already acting and is having a massive influence on negotiations around refugee quotas at the EU level already. And that's all just the negotiations have basically broken down. Whereas Di Maio has already accepted that anything that he introduces along those lines of this kind of citizenship subsidy won't come straight away. And he's going to reform the unemployment offices and do a number of things first. So his job is, to be honest, much more difficult than Salvini's, which is that he's just ready to go. Is Salvini basically calling the shots here because it is to go back to the election the league got fewer votes than Renzi's party they got more votes within the centre-right coalition they got a lot fewer votes than five star and yet he seems to be basically in the driving seat now I think he is is that because he's a more skillful politician so I think part of the reason is because he's certainly most skilled and most more experienced than Di Maio I also wonder whether part of the, of the difference in skills derives from the fact that Salvini has a party behind him, while the Five Star Movement has a movement that doesn't have much experience. So I wonder whether the difference between party and movement is relevant here in explaining what's going on. I mean, also De Maio and Salvini, the relative weight they command in terms of vote share has changed a lot if you go with the polls. I mean, the polls suggest now that they're basically, the Leg and the Five Star are equally at around 30%. The Five Star's gone down a tiny bit and the Leg has gone up enormously. So if he's in the sort of driving seat, it's that he's got this momentum behind him from the polls. And in that sense, this is a remarkably popular government in that it commands the support of well over half of the Italian electorate. It is 52 if you if you look at the vote share at the, the moment of the election, but now it looks like it's probably 60. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So Helen, can we widen this out a bit now? Because as you said, the thing that really spooks the markets is at some level, the idea of contagion, that what happens in Italy doesn't stay in Italy. And we also had um, in the last few days, finally, a response from Merkel to Macron's proposal for reform of the European Union, um, as well as the Eurozone. And it was, I don't know how you want to characterise it, but it was um, modest. 
lukewarm. It wasn't dismissive. She's much weaker than she was, but it wasn't giving him what he wanted, right? On the issue of Eurozone reform, she really didn't give him anything of significance at all. And and didn't she go out of her way to say, I am not bailing out the Italians? Yeah, the most important thing that she said in this regard was that we're not creating a debt union. Mm. There's not going to be debt sharing. Now, you can argue that some form of complicated debt sharing is actually already taking place and it's kind of being hidden behind the way that the European Central Bank does various things. But at the same time, what it was saying in absolute no to was a Eurozone budget of any substantial size in which the Eurozone, as the Eurozone, could borrow money as a single actor and which say that fund could then be used in order to finance some kind of fiscal stimulus for Italy because Italy will not be able to have a fiscal stimulus so long as it is bound by the fiscal rules of the Eurozone. I mean, I think I would argue is is that Italy can't really have a fiscal stimulus because of a market constraint um, as well. But this would have been a way around it in terms of having a fiscal stimulus that was a Eurozone fiscal stimulus. And that I think that's the most important part of what she's saying, noted for what we're talking about is that. And so how much does that increase the likelihood of quite soon there being a confrontation between this new Italian government and the government in Berlin? I think there's going to be a confrontation about a number of issues and you can certainly see the desire of this new government to really push at the fiscal rules. The issue though is is that Italy has absorbed some of those fiscal rules independently of the Eurozone treaties themselves, so going back to Maastricht and the Stability and Growth Pact, into its own constitution because of what happened in relation to the fiscal compact that was signed in 2011. And then you've got the fact that this Italian government, like any other Italian government, has got to deal with the constraints that the bond markets create. Now, at the moment, Italy pays exceptionally low interest on its debt. I mean, in some sense, it's absurd that Italy can have a debt that's more than 130% of GDP and be paying as little interest as it as it is. And the central mechanism by which that has occurred, at least in recent years, has been quantitative easing. So in some sense, I'd say that the most long-term consequential confrontation is going to be what this Italian government is going to have to say about who the next head of the ECB is. Because Draghi's term is coming to an end next year. There's clearly a desire, not only in Germany, but in other Northern European states to have a Northern European friendly, as they see it, person as president of the European Central Bank. But anybody who took that job and then terminated QE would cause an immense problem for Italy. I mean, Italy's is being propped up by the European Central Bank at the moment. And if you imagine the problems it had just on that day with QE in place, and then imagine what happens when that gets taken away, that's a whole other ball game, something that's something that we haven't seen yet. I think there'll be certainly fights around that post, but um, I also think that what maybe makes Italy sort of the most significant case so far is that we have this broad societal majority in favour of two parties whose positions are in many ways going to clash with European rules. And, you know, we saw it already when Mattarella made his decision, you begin to see this idea of the Eurozone versus democracy as a pretty open platform around which people can really clearly understand and just think this is unacceptable. And that was a sort of a flash, and then it receded. But I think over the next few months and years of this Italian government, there's going to be that in the background. And if you've got something like, you know, 60% of a voting 
population behind you, then that's a very strong position when you're negotiating. But the Eurozone, as it stands, can't be making these changes. It can't reform in the way that would accommodate Italy. So the, the standoff, I think, is just going to come sooner or later. And I don't see how... You know, certainly with what Merkel's been saying, there's no appetite for the kind of changes that would make somebody like Savona back the Eurozone. That's just I think you've got to distinguish, though, between the capacity that Italy has for a confrontation about fiscal rules, which I'd say is pretty limited, and the capacity Italy one day may have for a confrontation about exiting the Euro and using a threat of exiting the Euro. I'd be pretty pessimistic about what Italy can do in terms of confronting the fiscal rules. As I say, because it is dependent on the European Central Bank and if that support is withdrawn then Italy has an immense problem. The difference between Italy and Greece when it comes to using the threat of leaving the euro is that for a number of states including obviously Germany given Schauble's position on it then Greek exit was a good thing, it was a desirable thing and that is why ultimately Varoufakis didn't have the negotiating leverage that he thought he had but Italian exit is a whole other proposition because Italian exit from the euro throws the whole EU project into question in the way in which Greek exit from the euro never never could do. And that's where I think the Italians have actually got more potential for resistance. But going back to the constitutional question, and this is where there's such a tension between the fact that I think it is correct in some sense that the euro is constitutionally bound in. On the other hand, threatening to leave the euro is the best weapon that Italy has to get anywhere. There clearly was a fear, Lucia, of another election. And some people said if there were to be another election, it would be a referendum on the euro. But then I read more recently people saying it would actually be a referendum on democracy itself. I mean, in the end, that would be, as Chris described it, that would be how it would end up being presented, which is, do we still believe that voting for people in the Italian parliament and the Italian government means anything or not? And then the stakes are really high. Yes, and I think that is what would have happened if we went to elections. And the interesting thing that we didn't mention before when we were discussing the week that passed in between the the president rejecting Savona and then the new government being formed is that immediately after the president gave his speech explaining why he didn't want Savona as finance minister, uh, then the Five Star Movement, as well as some other parties in the centre-right coalition, called for the impeachment of the president on the grounds that what he did was treason. So the argument was, this is completely anti-democratic, this is an overturning of the constitution, so we are the real defenders of the constitution, and we are going to impeach the president on, on the grounds of treason. And that would then have been the fault line, and presumably this growth in support for the two parties that are now the governing parties is precisely on that ground, that a lot of people who may not particularly sign up to the shared programme still will defend an elected government over an unelected interferer in that government. Yes, and it was also interesting in those days to see how much, how members of the establishment, so for instance, either intellectuals sympathetic to the Partito Democratico or people sympathetic to the centre-right, not the Lega, but either Berlusconi or Brothers of Italy, were also accusing the president. They didn't want the impeachment, but they did not share, they explicitly said that they did not share what he did because it was somehow anti-democratic. I think that the thing that Italian membership of the euro has done, actually even before Italy got into the euro, is hollow out Italian democracy. Italy is the one country that required two technocratic governments as part of its qualification for monetary union. Yeah, and it is a democracy. If you had to say what's its distinguishing characteristic at the moment, it is fear of elections. 
And fear of elections is not a good basis for democratic politics. No, and it is pretty clear that you can tie the story of how that's happened in Italy to the story of the euro. And the fact in the case of Five Star that they're a relatively insignificant movement until we get to the autumn of 2011 and the removal of Berlusconi from office. Now, as I say, I think you can make the arguments in some sense, though not quite the way that he did it in terms of savers that Mattarella made in terms of the constitutionality of Euro membership. But then you can see the complete problem that causes for any claim to democratic politics. If you put a macroeconomic question into the constitution, then say that it can't be touched and then say that you're carrying on having elections determine who is going to take office. Well, actually, something gives. And what's given in Italy is a notion that elections can determine who exercises power. Lucia, can I ask you a question that's been not troubling me, but troubling me? Why does Italian politics think that university professors are the kind of guarantors of anything? I mean, there seem to be a few in this government. Is that a persistent feature of Italian politics that you look to universities to kind of get you out of a hole? Yes, yeah, so it doesn't I, happen here, I should say. Yes, no, I think it is a feature of Italian politics that we somehow trust university professors. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this is the striking feature of this so government. It, it doesn't it? make it, as some people have said, it doesn't make it actually a kind of secret technocratic government hiding behind a populist mask. It's, Chris, it's, I mean, you've written a lot about the close connection between populism and technocracy. Do you see it like that or not? So, I mean, there, there are echoes of, of this everywhere. I don't think it's necessarily in the nomination of university professors to, to ministries. Um, there are a few. What's more striking is just basically they've had to have a balance between five-star people and Lega people, and they've carved out the ministries according to that. Somebody like uh, Conte, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, he really sort of in some ways came out of nowhere and there was this mini scandal about his CV and he put, oh, yeah. you know, institutions... He may not be his... the university professor, he claims to be That's quite. That's right. Um, so he uh, said he was at various American institutions and he may not quite have actually been there. Well, or he also he said he was here and it wasn't clear that he was here either. Here being... Um, Cambridge. Oh, did he? Um, yeah. So there's a number of different things. Um, and what I think it buys into is that there is a sense in which being a kind of... Experts may be the wrong way of putting it. I mean, the technocrat has reference to the expert, but it also definitely has reference to the non-political. And I think what's more important here is the study of somehow somebody being outside of party politics. And perhaps the most catastrophic aspect, in my view, of the whole Mattarella-Savona sort of affair was that you had, in a moment, the potential for electoral politics to be organised entirely around the technocratic versus the populist. The Five Star and the Lega would have been the voice of the people, and then those who didn't fancy the Five Star or the Lega would have had to side with... The, the IMF, a- basically. Yeah. Well, the apolitical aspects yeah. of... And there you have, as a electoral choice, you're a million miles away from which programme is better, do you prefer certain kinds of policies, you're in a different world of politics. So, now the university professors... It's kind of interesting. It's kind of a curious feature. It's also, I think, what Helen said, there's been embedded within Italian politics over the last 20 years an emphasis on apolitical figures. And if you're going to look for them, it's almost inevitable that some of them will be university professors. Because there is this other development in European politics this week. What's happened in Spain, where because of a corruption scandal, this is nothing new. I mean, corruption bringing down governments in European politics is nothing new. But Rajoy has gone. And he's been replaced by Sanchez, who is another university professor, who also, he's a party politician, he's a socialist politician, but he's currently unelected. And he had this weird sort of journey in which, having been re- effectively rejected at the ballot box, he went on a kind of 
a literal journey around the country to reconnect with ordinary people and has now come back. I'm also struck by he's one of an increasing number of politicians who are coming into power who, in the British press, are described as friends of Jeremy Corbyn. There's quite a lot of that actually going on too. But And something very interesting also, we've never even talked about this, is happening in Portugal at the moment. You know, another of the countries that's meant to be one of the absolute flashpoints for the Eurozone has had a pretty successful social democratic government propped up by further left parties who are currently very unhappy with its semi-austerity-like programme. But it's still... The Portuguese economy is growing quite fast and the, the socialists are actually managing quite well to kind of balance being propped up by the communists and also meeting their obligations to the Eurozone. So social democracy in Italy is in... Yeah, Lucia's just shaking her head at me, hopeless. But in Spain, in Portugal, the two other Southern European flashpoints, if we leave Greece out of it, it's doing okay, although it's this complicated thing. It's doing okay, but it's not obviously like electoral success. It's kind of managing to negotiate complex party relationships. I think we can overdo the success of the, or even the relative success or whatever we want to call it, of the Socialist Party in Spain because it's still in a very weak parliamentary position and it's effectively the Nationalist Party, Separatist Parties, whatever we want to call them, that have done the work in bringing down Rajoy. Mm. And it's striking that um, Sanchez apparently has nominated a cabinet which makes very few concessions to this and is trying to create a cabinet of his party. And it's not clear that's going to cut it when it comes to election time. I think the other thing that's interesting, though, in regard to this new government in Spain is how Germany, the Commission, the European Central Bank, to some extent, is going to treat this new Spanish government. Because one of the things that's really striking about the Rajoy government was it was protected by the Eurozone authorities in different ways, not least through the support of Wolfgang Schauble, the former German finance minister, for its breaches of the fiscal rules. Whether the same tolerance is going to be extended to this new Spanish government is going to be a very interesting question. I think Sanchez is is interesting. He's been very lucky, it has to be said. I didn't think it was going to work because I thought the Basque nationalists had done such a good deal with the PP on the budget. They'd got a lot of money from, from Rajoy that they were never going to vote against him, but they did. I think they did because they thought that the budget was done and dusted and so they couldn't go back on what they'd got, even if they supported uh, Sanchez. So it's all very sort of... Um, very Machiavellian, very Game of Thrones-esque. And Podemos has sort of seized the opportunity and you had this curious tweet from the leader of Podemos, Pablo Iglesias, where he said it'd been a... Another ex-university professor, it should be said. I think he's on leave or something. I'm sure he'll return to that job. Um, But he tweeted, he said it'd been a pleasure being with Rajoy. He's such a good politician and it was a real honour engaging with him politically. Very strange, uh, but Podemos is kind of positioning itself to try and get a lot out of this new government. I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, Sanchez has nominated some people to his government, his foreign minister, for instance. I mean, he was forced to resign from his presidency of the European University Institute for reasons of corruption. And that's not that long ago. So let's see how they do. But I don't think they're in a particularly strong position. And I think we we were going to definitely come back to this, which is the other thing that cuts across it in Spain, obviously, is there's a new government in Catalonia, too. And this wider question about where is democracy actually located in the system is a question between nation states and the European Union, but it's also a question within nation states. So can I finish with that, which is, there's been a lot of commentary about what's happening in Italy, some of it quite panicky, some of it very, very sort of dismissive, almost disgusted. And there are some fairly disgusting aspects too, um, particularly some of Salvini's tweeting and rhetoric. Race and immigration really cuts across this. But then one or two people saying don't like it but we've got to accept that not only is this how democracy works but this is how democracy is meant to work the italian system 
was not delivering for people and essentially given their chance in an election the Italian people rejected it so they want something different so you've got to try the different thing they want and if that doesn't work in a democracy they'll get a chance to replace that too the, the fatal thing would be what Chris described which is turning it into a battle between democracy and competence or something like that but if you're going to have a democracy you absolutely have to let these governments particularly with 60% plus of the people supporting them have a go you know a decent go and then if they fail so long as we're still a democracy we can reject them the thing that might give people pause is that one of the first things that Salvini has done, as I mentioned earlier, is to talk to Orban um, in Hungary. And it's not clear that Hungary is still a democracy in the sense that what are the conditions in which Orban would actually leave office following an election? But Italy's not there, right? I mean, there's no sense that Italy somehow these two parties or this party in this movement are going to stitch it up such that next time there will be no alternative. This is democracy in action. Yes. And I think it is very interesting to to see how the importance of this type of argument, meaning this this is democracy in action, changed from the 2011 crisis to now. So in 2011, when Berlusconi lost the confidence and Monti substituted him, everybody agreed that this is, yeah, maybe it's not exactly democratic, even though it was constitutional, but it is absolutely what is needed. We, uh, I guess most of the, of the voters were willing to buy into the necessity of that outmaneuver for the sake of preserving democracy. Well, now nobody is willing to buy into that anymore. And when the president rejected Savona on the grounds that it was constitutionally risky and the euro problem, as I said before, even most intellectuals came out against this move precisely because this was seen as impeding democracy. But I think there's a, a real danger, which is that however successful this may be as the workings out of democratic politics, the Italian case shows that under the terms of EU membership, it's easy to play the race card. You don't get obstacles, constitutional obstacles, if you pursue a deeply racist policy that is incredibly hostile to to immigrants, uh, which is what Salvini's doing. But if you want to try and question some macroeconomic rules, it's an absolute no-go. And that's not, you know, in a democracy that there are some important policy areas that are simply off-limits. That's not a great sign. And I wouldn't be surprised if, in the long run or in the medium term, the, this new government tries to put in place some of the economic measures. The European Union tries to stop the government on the economic fi- fiscal measures, but let it go when it comes to migration, to race, or, for instance, also civil rights. new uh, minister for family affairs is somebody who, on record, said that gay families don't exist. I, I'm afraid that what's going to happen is that in order to keep Italy quiet, maybe on the economic and fiscal aspects, the race and civil rights aspect is going to Italy is actually, or the new government is is going to play a dangerous game. I think what the Italy case shows is is that once you get to a certain position in the euro, particularly with a very high level of debt like Italy has, then democracy, when it comes to economic policy, doesn't really mean anything. You know, the Italians could have elections and they could elect one government and they could not like it and they could kick that government out and replace it with another one and then kick that government out, etc., etc. But it isn't going to make any difference to the macroeconomic options open to Italy, either because of Italy's position in regard to its own debt and its need to service that debt and to raise capital and the markets in order to do that, or in regard to the fiscal rules. And it's not in a position to challenge the fiscal rules because it's too dependent on the European Central Bank. And so, in some sense, elections have been made irrelevant when it comes to economic policy. Now, you can argue then that means that they're going to be even more relevant because 
in terms of other aspects because that's the only issues that can be talked about and then acted upon and become the non-economic policy questions. But the economic policy questions are the fundamental problems that Italy faces because Italy cannot reduce its debt as a percentage of GDP until it has higher growth. And it's incredibly difficult to see how it can have higher growth whilst it remains in the euro. It's incredibly difficult to see how it can leave the euro given the volume of debt that it has. It's in a trap. And democracy can't get it out of that trap. But but as you said earlier, in the two prongs to this, can't do anything about the fiscal rules, but there is the kind of loaded gun. Mm. And the loaded gun in the hands of a democratic system is still a very, very significant thing. But what will happen when Italy says, we want a debt union, otherwise we're going to leave the euro, and uh, the German government says, not on your life? They would never get a debt union through their political system. The AFD is is big enough if you start to introduce those kind of reforms. The mainstream German parties are are done for. So that no, I entirely agree. But that's the, that's the wider trap. Is on the one hand, the only way in which you can see the eurozone working much better than it does now is to have a debt union. But there is absolutely no way the eurozone can have a debt union because there's no not only German consent to it, but consent to it in other northern European member states too. So you have a just as much a tight version of... There aren't even bad options for the eurozone and there aren't bad options for Italy. There's just badder and badder options. So maybe this is how democracy ends. We're going to tweet the link to the episode that we did about Catalonia. We're also going to tweet a link to where you can get tickets to see us live at the Guardian King's Place Politics Festival. That's coming up on the 24th of June. Coming up on this podcast, we're going to be talking to Andrew O'Hagan about the Grenfell Tower fire and his amazing piece in the current London Review of Books, which you can read online there, lrb.co.uk. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. the nomination then of Cattarelli, who was someone who... Cottarelli. Cottarelli, that's not again. So, what is it? What is it? Cottarelli. 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 There's a bit of the story that we missed out so far, which is after the um, rejection um, by Mattarelli of Cattarelli. Mattarella Cottarelli. Just do Cottarelli. President yeah. and Cottarelli. Cottarelli. Phew, got away with that. Uh, <clears throat> Risky. Risky. Oh, living on the edge. <laughs> podcasting <laughs> that will go in the out that, you see I always know that that one is going to appear yeah the cat laughing at not with laugh hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy so I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.